0: NewsHounds from Queen City Nerve is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at Queen
1: Welcome to episode 54 of Queen City Nerves News Hounds podcast. I am Ryan Pitkin. As always, I have Justin LaFrancois here with me. I got nothing this time. I'm not even high. Justin didn't even know we were, well, he forgot we were recording I about forget. until about
2: an hour ago. I've got it on my calendar, but it doesn't remind me because it's so superfluous. <laughs> am I sold?
1: Oh, you already brought one out. Did that, did that work? Yeah, I think so. Cool. He's moving. also learned cacophony this week. So cacophony. we're gonna hear he's saying it's a cacophony. This is a cacophony. <laughs> we also have our guest here with us today, Tim Emery, defense attorney with Emery Law Firm. Correct? Yeah. What's going on, Tim? I'm happy to be here. This is, you know, my I'm popping my podcast cherry.
0: Today. Oh, nice. the oh, first yeah. one. So
1: excited. Yeah. And I should also say, I mean, in a news relevance way, uh Tim is also running for DA. I think the first one other than Spencer to announce that he'll be running. That's correct. As Um, far as I know, it's just he and
0: I and the the Democratic primary, no one, no one on the Republican side. It's Mm -hmm. yeah. So
1: the race is May 17th. I remember back in our first year recording this podcast, I just. Randomly said, I don't know, I still don't know where I got it from. And oh, I said yeah. Spencer is not running for re-election. I just read that somewhere and then he gave me a call. I was like, where did you come up with that idea? <laughs> and I was like, I swear it was in the agenda or something. Spencer Merriweather is running for re-election. District Attorney Tim Emery is the challenger. As of right now, the only one. Do you know if we were just discussing this before we even came into the studio? Do you know if filing for candidacy in general has has resumed yet? So I haven't heard the final say so, but mm-hmm. I've heard speculation that they're going to resume
0: it like late February. I think good. maybe the I twenty eighth.
1: Yeah, something. Yeah, that's what I saw. God, I wish something they would stop like pushing that. It back. It's yeah. crazy.
2: I check the filing every day. Just to see when a new name pops up on there, so I can be like, all right, because we're
1: making a comprehensive
2: listing of all the candidates. And it's a shit show. It's trying to keep up with those ridiculous.
1: So, for those who don't know, very long story, super short. Because of the census data being delayed in 2020 and the results being delayed early 2021, we got our municipal elections pushed back from November originally into March of this year. Then because of court challenges to new congressional districts who had nothing that had nothing to do with our actual municipal districts or municipal elections at all, but statewide and federal representatives, you know, Senate, U.S. House. That pushed I, it definitely pushed back filing further. And I think it pushed back our elections even more now to May 17th for city council. And so where does then then that. Sort of gets things crazy because there's still regularly scheduled elections later this year in terms of Mecklenburg County and things like that. Where does DA fall into this timeline?
0: Yeah, so we are we're under the operation because it's technically a state office. Mm. So we're under the understanding that May 17th will be the date and then the traditional gotcha. you know, first Tuesday in
1: November that's right. not the first. So May November. 17th for primary. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, tell me a little bit just about how you got, you know, I became familiar with you covering activism and sort of, you know, you're very active in terms of Black Lives Matter, yeah. stuff like that, and, and uh, defending folks like that, or just being involved in the movement in general, uh, yeah. showing your support. So I really became more familiar with you in 2020 during that during following George Floyd's murder, tell me like how long you've been in Charlotte and what you know became an attorney? how long you've been here working as a defense attorney? Yeah,
0: so I, I grew up in the state of Nebraska, and then I came out to Charlotte after law school in in Virginia in spring of two thousand and two. And I started in the public defender's office, worked there for a few years, worked for a small criminal defense firm after that. And for about the last ten years, it's just been me a solo practitioner. Criminal defense, I take a mixture of court appointed and people that privately retain me and pretty much just focus on that with the exception of you know, after the June 2nd sort of unlawful assault on protesters uptown on on uh, 4th Street got involved in that case. And there's like 10 attorneys involved right. in the – at first it was an injunction case and now a, a class action lawsuit against the city and CMPD.
1: Full disclosure here, Justin was named they a know. plaintiff in this yeah, case. They know. <laughs> How many times have
2: um, we talked about this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so – you know, what has it been like for you just in Charlotte as someone? You know, we've we've done stories about Rebecca Cannon. There's 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 Darlene Harris is out there, is very active in the in the movement. What has it been like, you know, for the few of you who are sort of outspoken in that way to be working in that system? Obviously, you were a public defender for a little bit. It must be a lot more difficult when you're representing, I guess, government. You could say public defenders are sort of a arm of the government, right? Yeah. But even without being tied to anything like that, I mean, what is it like for you to sort of navigate the justice system here in Charlotte?
0: It's a lot easier for me to navigate it than it is for my clients, mm-hmm. you know, right. but it's it's a weird place, like getting some notoriety. You know, I represented pro bono some protesters who got arrested after the Keith Scott, you know, protests, but that didn't have near the sort of exposure of some of this stuff. And I've gotten some weird reactions in the courthouse from people, some judges who, you know, they're, you know, they want to critique the method in which we go about our protests, particularly when decarcerate Mecklenburg was Mm -hmm. really going pretty heavily at the beginning of the pandemic. And some strange comments from some court staff and
1: Mm -hmm. and some supportive comments as well. I I don't want to paint it as all negative. Right. And not me using this word unironically, because it's now become almost to the point where it's like a slur, but have you been called too woke? Yeah. (laughs) I
0: mean, there's, I mean... More so over Twitter, right? right. But like yeah. you're
1: definitely you're definitely outspoken on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely. where I started to become aware of you.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's always there. I, I like to call it. You know, I think as white people we have we have an opportunity to go through a racial awakening. Mine sort of went in stages. Um, started relatively early in my life, and then I think kind of paused and, and stalled out for a long time, and then kind of had some opportunities in my career and in. in 14, 15 to sort of recharge some of that. And it's just been sort of a a natural path since then. It can be challenging, you know, being outspoken, an outspoken critic of a system, and then working in that system is really challenging. Now, both Habeka and Darlene, I'm, I'm really proud to have both of those women as supporters of the campaign. But they have to, they have a lot more challenges to navigate as mm-hmm. black women in that space. You know, even, even amongst people that know me, there's, uh, you know, there, there, there is, there is definitely privilege with being a, a tall white male attorney in the courthouse. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm given latitude and I try and use that in the courtroom. I push the envelope a little bit more than maybe some of my, you know, black colleagues can or, Feel safe doing, you know. I had I was referring to in a bond hearing the jail and and my client's situation as being in a cage, and the judge really got upset with that and suggested that I had done something unethical or possibly contempt of court. Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, and my I, definition,
0: which is it, odd because it, uh, technically uh, you were uh, suggesting yes. that he
2: was doing something unethical. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, and I, I. Held my ground. I, I was deferential, but I said, you know, there's no cameras here. Like this is a cage. He is, he is, he is in a cage and he is totally vulnerable to this, to, to this infection in here. And he has little he can do to protect himself. And, you know, we can use other terms for it, but it doesn't change the reality of what his mm-hmm. life is. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because it's sort of, it became, you became involved with Decarcerate Mac very quickly in the onset of the pandemic. Yeah. This was March, before March 20th, I feel like you guys were outside of the jail, you know, holding press conferences, doing the car, the drive through rallies, drive through protests around. Uptown Fourth Street, or the jail, and this was March 2020. Now we fast forward to January 2022, and we have a state report calling on calling on the sheriff's office to do the same thing you've been calling on them to do for a year and a half, year and eight months. Let's start from the beginning there in terms of what the not feedback, but the response from the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office has been, because it's always sort of. I write about this in the story that just came out and that will be online when this podcast comes out about how Gary McFadden started with sort of more support than you'll ever see for a law enforcement official from the activist community and just really popular for his willingness to stand up to ICE, things like that. Things during the protests. This was even after decarcerate started was when the protests sort of hopped off. But they, you know, with jail support, and we can talk about yeah. that, you know, he started to lose a lot of popularity from that. But even with decarcerate Mech, I mean, was he attentive to this and willing to hear you guys out or work to depopulate at all? Basically, long story short, the, the call of decarcerate Mech is what it says. It's to let as many folks who are not danger to society out of the jail as possible, due to the COVID pandemic coming on March 2020.
0: I felt like he was receptive to hearing from us. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we were asking different things of all the different actors, right? And and the sheriff. The sheriff can't just unilaterally decide to let people out. Right. That would be illegal for him to do, right? People have these bonds, right? They have to buy their freedom and he can't affect those bonds. Judges can. Prosecutors can consent to reduce or unsecure those bonds so the person doesn't have to pay money. What we were focused with him on was more preventative measures to detect or stop the influx of COVID in the jail, We weren't getting clear information in terms of if they were testing, we were getting anecdotal stories from our people in jail and from different, you know, activists who are in communication with people who were in jail that there wasn't uh, masks weren't available. Ev- I mean, remember at first we were, we cared more about gloves, right? Right, right? Like mm-hmm. gloves were the big thing to get, mm-hmm. but you know, what was being provided was soap being provided was, you know, and, and so that was our focus with the sheriff's department that you're providing precautionary care for the people that are in there. And then the push w- from the the courts and the prosecutor was, Let more people out. You don't need to be holding people in on low-level felonies, misdemeanors when this is raging. And then the the biggest push was really towards the police department because they have discretion on misdemeanors to either arrest or cite, Mm -hmm. issue a citation. And they really pushed back against – they had a real cheesy quote about we have to continue our crime-fighting you know, during the pandemic, like, like they were Batman (laughs) Batman or something. And, you know, that a real interesting thing that could give us an opportunity to, you know, maybe challenge some of our misconceptions or our conventional wisdom is, court has been relatively closed for two years and we did decarcerate for a period. And so the conventional wisdom would be, oh my God, crime must be out of control in Charlotte. It's actually down. Mm -hmm. Right. And so maybe the things that we think keep us safe, actually aren't effective at that because I I would think that police would have told you if you laid out this scenario of courts closed for two years, they really can't move cases along and they're just all sitting there pending, oh my God, the criminals are just going to be blah, blah, blah. Running rampant. Running rampant. And that hasn't
2: happened. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a perfect opportunity to put that aspect in front of people who – because I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't even consider it the way that you just put it out there. So now is a, definitely a great time to remind people, like, you know, it's not the crime fighting that stops crime. It's offering people resources mm-hmm. to move their fucking lives. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs>
1: exactly. And how much did that... I'm hopping around a little bit here just yeah. to... Just, just sitting sh- down. We're just chatting. He's yeah. liar. Um, <laughs> He's just sitting. <laughs> How much did that, you said it, your sort of uh, awakening and racial reckoning happened in stages for you personally. Yeah. How much does serving on the public defender's office after, you know, graduating law school and passing the bar, I assume you passed the yeah. bar. I don't want to. I had to I'm, take it twice. gotcha I'm actually not. Could you imagine
2: somebody running for district
1: attorney that didn't <laughs> it, pass
2: the bar? Like, no one asked me. No <laughs> one asked
1: if I ever did it. But from there until, you know, in the, your time in Charlotte was serving as a public defender. I mean, was it a wake up call just to see the way that these folks are, you know, stuck in the ju- justice system and treated?
0: It definitely was. Mm-hmm. I interned for three summers in the public defender oh, office okay. when I was in law school. And the first summer I was assigned to who is now the head public defender, Kevin Tully, man, that, that I got a heck of an education that summer. You know, I was, aware of things on some level, but to actually see it firsthand and to see the way a lot of my clients have to, the struggles that they have to do to just survive and make it through a day or a week. That was something that was, you know, I'm a white man from Lincoln, Nebraska. We we are not, we were it's not the United Colors of Benetton right. in Nebraska, you mm-hmm. know. And so, you know, that was an awakening. That was one of many sort of eye-opening moments. Right.
2: Yeah. What? <laughs> I just <laughs> judged my movement. I, I just, I listen with my eyes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then just coming back to the decarcerate movement and things. So now, like I just mentioned, we've got a report from the NCDHHS some uh they came in december did jail investigate or jail inspection and just found you know between the outbreaks both for detainees and uh staff members staffing shortages in general um they found some really unsafe conditions before this report i mean we spoke a little bit recently for the story that i'm writing about said report it's about you know you've you've been working with clients who yeah. have been within this jail and and we're talking about the main one the central and uptown what have you been hearing just in terms of how things have changed. You know, we've heard things about certain conditions and when people passed away within that jail before in the past, Yeah, wh- how did things get worse? And was it like a gradual thing? Was it right in 2020? Like what, what was were you it hearing? always the same and just unnoticed? Right.
0: Yeah. I, boy, that's a good one. I think that it, it's certainly like degrees and it certainly amped up since COVID. I've had, I had a client who um, had a stroke in Mecklenburg County Jail, and he's not, he's younger than me. And they took him to the hospital. I think he had two separate stints in the hospital, if I understand correctly, you know, and, and, and I have to wonder, I don't know the details. I'm not sort of involved Mm -hmm. in that aspect of it, but I think that they were there was some
1: tardiness to get to him and, and to recognize what was going on, and that's some um, of the reporting Charlotte Observer did in September that sort of found that that played a role or p- potentially played a role, but it was certainly occurred during in the case of two deaths at the jail yeah. last year that happened within eight days of each other, in which they're supposed to come every thirty minutes or every fifteen minutes. Yeah, there, it, there's a time they're supposed to come you know and check on you at every every interval and it just wasn't happening that's correct and that's where staffing shortages really start to come in and i'm hearing a lot of that i'm mm-hmm. you know aside from that i had a client who did
0: get i've had several clients who've gotten covid in jail one who a pretty severe case he had to be hospitalized his his lung collapsed mm-hmm. they got him they thought they got him back put him back in the jail his lung collapsed a second time I'm no doctor, but I suspect he might be in that long haul COVID situation. Right. But just hearing from a lot of clients, things like, well, when they're short on staff, they just lock us down all day. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the answer. Or-
1: I've spoken um, – I spoke to two people for this story specifically who were incarcerated in December, both said the same thing, that yeah. their entire time there, other than quarantine time, when they were with 15 other people just sitting on a floor, uh, and then mm-hmm. when they finally did get in the cell, they weren't getting out. It was 23 yeah. hours a day. and And the, the
0: mental – impact that that has on someone's well-being. Unfortunately, the criminal punishment system captures a lot of people with mental illness, right? And so, there's probably a disproportionate amount of people in the jail who suffer from mental illness to begin with. They may or may not be getting medication in there. They may or may not have an accurate diagnosis. Then you add something like 23-hour lockdown, and sure, it becomes a really explosive situation where people who may not have proclivities towards violence suddenly decompensate to a way in which they do become violent and aggressive. And then you have staff who are overworked and overwhelmed, and maybe their normal restraint and um, caution gets reduced a little bit and it can really be a toxic situation, I mm-hmm. think. And and I think that's some of what we're
1: seeing from some of the, you know, anecdotal complaints from staff as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking to one of those folks who was incarcerated told me that he had spent seven days in this room with 15 other folks, two beds. And there was a person in this first day having this speaks to what you were saying about your client who had the stroke had uh, this person had three seizures while he was sitting in there and he was taken out. Obviously, no telling. They were probably treated in some way, but like within 15 minutes brought back in on a wheelchair and then within, you know, within the hour would seize again.
2: I saw a video of that somewhere. Really? The story is exactly identical to something that. Either happened on like 60 days in, like a few weeks ago or something similar, but it was a video of, they were all in a room together and somebody was having a seizure over in the corner and they were pounding on the door, trying to get them to get medical attention. They took him out, did whatever, and then put him right back in where he kept having more seizures and he was about to die in there and stuff. So hope you weren't.
1: lied to. (laughs) no. you weren't just told something that I saw a video of (laughs) Um, on TV the other day. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the medical unit, from what I understand, talking to former staff members, is like one of the most struggling aspects of it with the staff shortage. And obviously, we have a jail system that is becoming pushed to the brink of its capacity, just in terms of shortages, not in capacity of necessarily numbers of people in there. But then the healthcare system, that's being pushed to its capacity and that's sort of the intersection of the, the two it's like a very scary thing as to who's there to treat folks
2: do they have an infirmary at the jail like with yeah. medical staff yeah
1: medical like unit that? yeah and that's where multiple of these attacks have occurred too and it's like it's just a, a shitty situation i guess altogether but just in terms of so what happens, and I don't expect you to know the details mm-hmm. of this, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but like now that the state has made this report and this this inspector Chris Wood is the one who wrote this report saying this is what you need to do, 1407 inmates on the December 23rd, I think it was, inspection need to get it down to below a thousand. And this is addressed to McFadden. What happens from there? Because as you said, it's not necessarily his decision. Yeah. So I think we're right. The scary thing is I haven't heard of a
0: plan. Right. I'm not saying that there isn't a plan by court actors. I know that what one of the things that the sheriff's office is trying to do is contact other jails or facilities to see if they'll take people. So the sheriff... Does have the ability to transfer people. Yeah. Okay. Just. But I'm also hearing anecdotally from lawyers that I had a client just disappear off of the jail screen. It's like there was no record of him even being there Mm -hmm. and I don't know where he is. Mm -hmm. So, that's a problem. Right. Right. Like as attorneys, there's a lot of unconstitutional things happening right now, whereas we're deprived access to our clients. If our client is in respiratory isolation pod or whatever they call those pods, we can't go and visit them. Mm -hmm. So the only way we can talk to them is if they call us and we happen to be able to pick it up right then and there. You know, when they call. So you can't call back. Yeah.
2: Right.
0: And so, I mean, that doesn't really answer your question, but that's one of the things that's happening. Something I would like to see. And I I don't know that this isn't happening, Mm -hmm. but but I would like the sheriff to go to the judges and go to the currently elected district attorney saying, I need you to find me 150 people that we can alter their bond status so they can get out. Put them on pretrial, just unsecure their bonds, whatever the case may be, find me 150 Mm -hmm. and I can do something maybe with 250 others or I'm just pulling these numbers out of my ass, right, right, as a starter. And again, I don't know that that's not happening, but I haven't heard of a plan. And to my knowledge, and I've asked some people at the public defender's office, I've asked some people at the courthouse, is there a conversation about this report? Is there a conversation about a plan? Because early on in the pandemic, I will give the DA's office some credit that Mm -hmm. they were making more of an effort than normal to agree to let certain people out that they typically would argue should be you know, detained if they can't pay for their freedom that kind of fell off. Mm -hmm. I would say it fell off late summer, early fall of 2020. It ticked up a little bit when we had the last winter, right? Mm -hmm. But then it was kind of mitigated by uh, now we've got the vaccine. And so, that's another issue. They aren't doing a good job of, they're making the vaccine accessible and available to people who are locked up. But There needs to be a little bit more of an education piece there Um, Mm -hmm. because a lot of my clients, you know, they're receiving some really sketchy information about the vaccine. And from the way I've heard it portrayed, it's just, hey, do you want to get the shot or no? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a little ridiculous. And it's like, well, let's.
2: Let's have a public yeah. health approach to mm-hmm. this, especially to see how the rest of society is dealing with the information and misinformation that's being strewn about about the vaccine. To take somebody who's in isolation like that, yeah, and not provide them with, I mean, shit, both sides if you want to be fucking whatever about it, but to just the true information about it, even just some uh, laminated posters right. that are up to just
1: you know, outreach isn't that hard.
2: Here's the technology. Yeah. I don't even like calling it technology, like right. the, 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 because that
1: sounds like a microchip exactly the
2: myrna <laughs> technology yeah. like i hate that yeah. the process maybe would be a better word but even still just something like that hanging up just i wanted to go back real quick to when you were talking about how like the file could disappear you don't know where anybody is and I, we basically ran into that in that story that we wrote about when the cmpd arrested that dude in south carolina and his family couldn't find him, oh right remember yeah. mm-hmm. so they take people and in he was just gone yeah, they take yeah. people into the jail and then it's like, how do you... Just the same with any law enforcement agency, transparency is the yeah. biggest issue. And transparency through this process where the state said, you're operating you know, unethically, let's fix the problem. And then to say it's been, what, two weeks since that came out and we still don't know what the plan is, what they're doing, just like we were saying. Is there another jail in Mecklenburg County?
1: No, there was Jail North, which is now used for juveniles. Which, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but I mean, like
2: that's just a huge problem is is when something like this happens, the sheriff isn't the police chief. The sheriff is an elected official and he should be the most transparent law enforcement official. Like he should always let us know what's going on. There should be like weekly statistics that come out about people who got sick or injured or things like that. Like it shouldn't have to come from the state if it comes from him first. Like Mm -hmm. he should have known ahead of time, like we're overcrowded. And here's how I know we're overcrowded. Forget what the report said. We've got detention officers that are being attacked. We've got incarcerated folks who are getting sick and, and being injured by other people and all these mental health issues and, you know, shipping off to the hospital things. He should have made the decision on his own to actively try and depopulate a year ago. Right. Not he just did, a couple months ago. To his
1: credit, a week before that report came out, he did put out a press release. Um, I'm going to try to find it real quick, saying that he was moving some folks. He was releasing or re removing these... Basically, he's depopulating the juvenile center and moving some adults to the juvenile center in the north. So like he was very aware that it was occurring. Uh, That seems to be one of the things he's doing. I think since the report came out after I've seen some uh, statements he's made that Cabarrus County Jail has agreed to take such and such this many inmates. So it's almost like he's not depopulating as much as (laughs) repopulating other jails, which obviously, as you said, it might not be his it's not his uh, option just to depopulate straight up it it takes a partnership
0: well and i think the other challenge is the staffing issue comes into play there Mm -hmm. because i know early on in the pandemic i was told that there were some pods that they closed so it kind of counterintuitive to all the social distancing that we were doing on the outside they were consolidating pods because of the staffing concerns so yeah you might have some space Mm -hmm. at jail north but then
1: who is there? Yeah. Who's who are you gonna get to mm-hmm. work that? And, and that's a thing that these these former staff members that I spoke to for this story have been yelling about for a year in the fact in the sense that he's got a community outreach team that he's very apt to use for photo ops. Justin and I are familiar because we serve at Block Love with him sometimes. He was
2: he, it was also that fucking asshole that tried to say I was oh yeah. assaulting
1: him when they were right. arresting on the video. In jail support. He's community. Service yeah. engagement
2: dickhead motherfucker. <laughs>
1: so he's got this community outreach team that's relatively big 15 or 20 people who go out to these events. I saw a ton of them when I went to this Well Path Community Center, Well Path Opioid Treatment Center in Dorita. And they're like, why aren't they, you know, they're forcing, from what I understand, having people, it's not an option. You have to work overtime if you're in the wow. jail center and you're not testing positive for COVID-19 at certain points. And yet these folks are still going out to photo ops. And that's one of the first responses McFadden is gave it the to the same, state report.
2: Are they the same people? Like, they're is trained. They like,
1: yeah. They're, they have detention officer apparently in their title, according to uh, Hope, who I spoke to. The community outreach people yeah. are also. Right. Okay. They're all certified. You know, there's certain people in like records and stuff that aren't certified to work, but From what I understand, people in the recruiting department and people in community outreach are certified to work within the jail. And that's one of the first things McFadden said in response to the state report was we're going to start reallocating people from different departments to work within the jail. I forget where I was going with that, but I mean, it does seem like, you know, they've been, they've been saying this since I've been talking to these people for almost a year since mm, around April or May. And they've been saying that the whole time, like he's got a lot more people on the staff that aren't in the jail that yeah. can be put there.
2: And I will say that like, you know, he, he obviously carries all of the classic, characteristics of a systemic issue with law enforcement, because he is. But, I mean, he he won on a progressive platform. He, you know, I think he tries everything that he can, just personally himself, tries what he can to be progressive and inclusive. It just doesn't always work. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and the way he talks is like so... You know, kind of like look at me ish to where yeah he it's, loves him some
1: Gary McFadden it's
2: all self serving right uh, which you can be progressive and self serving at the same time but when you're overly self serving while trying to be progressive nobody gives a shit about the right. good that you're trying to <laughs> yeah. do and and then you get lumped up in this what we're literally talking about right now where he probably in his head had the best intentions mm-hmm. and following through just he's also had out.
1: zero experience in running a jail and he came in as a homicide detective and never worked in a sheriff's office well
2: do sheriffs who become sheriffs usually have experience yeah. in running a jail. Sure. Like oh, Gina, who just announced yeah. against
1: him was the assistant facility commander under him or no, under um, what's his name His predecessor.
2: That's so, like, right. Usually that's have right, some yeah. sort of, or when
1: Carmichael work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh yeah. Cause
2: that's right. He did come from being a homicide detective. Right. And I think, didn't he take some years off? Yeah, he was retired. Yeah. Did some TV shows. <laughs> well,
0: and also one of the challenges he has to deal with is trying to implement some progressive policies is, He's in a place where he needs buy-in from other mm-hmm. from other people mm-hmm. and systems resist change. Right. Yeah. Okay. So just and like so, you were talking
2: about where it has to come from the court and the prosecutor yeah, and the sheriff. And, like, there's a lot of
0: hands. You know, and so one one of the reasons that motivated me to run for district attorney is that there are a lot of things, particularly things that I'm focused on in my platform that I can somewhat implement unilaterally Mm -hmm. and I don't need as much buy-in from other system actors because I'm, I'm wary of that, Mm -hmm. right? That there is that natural pushback when you're trying to change, you know, there needs to be a culture change Mm -hmm. in all of our jails and prisons throughout this country. The reason we have worse outcomes as compared to every other country in the world, there's multiple reasons, but one of them is, we don't treat people with basic humanity that are being subject to the criminal punishment system. And that really manifests in the jails and in the prisons. We don't extend that basic humanity. And then, so we under, we don't understand then why they're worse when they come out than when they go in, my right. clients are invariably worse when they get out of prison
2: than when they go in. Right. And that's yeah, the scary part. Well, I mean, you go in and they strip you of everything. That's yeah. right. And, and it's not just you yourself that you're stripped of. It's your entire environment. You sleep on a, a, metal cot and like everything is just ripped away so that you can't be like violent but yeah. then not having anything would make me personally I would be more violent right. I would act that it's,
0: so he's he's working up against all of that tradition of the dehumanization of the people who are locked up right? And, right and and so that's a I think that's a constant challenge as a prosecutor I have a little bit if someone's not on board with the with the program I can hire someone else, mm-hmm, right? right? Yeah. And there's probably more immediacy, staffing immediacy problems in a jail because you can't just say, I'm going to fire everyone right, in the right. jail <laughs> and hire people who are on board with mm-hmm. the message because these 13 1,400 people are still there. Right, exactly. Right.
2: Ortho Carolina personalized orthopedic care goes beyond my appointment. Accessible, comprehensive, and compassionate. It's my care, my way. Schedule your appointment today at orthocarolina.com. Get
0: ready. Broadway is returning to Charlotte. Blumenthal Performing Arts has an incredible selection of upcoming hits, including the returns of Hamilton and Wicked. Plus, the long-awaited Charlotte debut of Disney's Frozen and many more fan-favorite musicals and plays. Season tickets are on sale now at blumenthalarts.org bpa broadway
2: Wash your hands, avoid sick people and touching your face. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Visit cdc.gov/covid19. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station.
0: At Ortho Carolina, my personalized orthopedic care begins with the click of a mouse because online scheduling saves me
2: time. Ortho Carolina, my care, my way. Schedule your appointment today at orthocarolina.com.
1: And I do want to talk a little bit, uh, definitely, about your campaign because you have some definite tenets of your of your platform and i've been watching some of your your videos very interactive just in terms of like getting the word out there and, yeah. and they're very helpful and seeing what you what it is you stand for but sort of leading into that i want to go back to something you said earlier and, and sort of zoom out on when you were talking about meriwether at the very beginning of the uh, pandemic made a little progress in letting some of these folks you know in lowering some of the bonds or eliminating bonds now i wrote a story in 20 uh, late 2018 when we first started this Paper, uh, if not early twenty nineteen, where Mary Weather's whole platform was based on doing that, no COVID on the horizon even. So when you compare him to say Andrew Murray, his predecessor, I mean, was he has he been com- meeting that goal at all? At least compared to folks before him we've had some improvements. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say
0: on, there are so many issues in these systems. There's so many problems inherent to this, this, to these systems. We are, this is probably a sad reflection on where we are as a country, but in Mecklenburg County, we're probably a little bit ahead of the curve when it comes to who are we detaining? How many people are being detained pretrial? I mean, there are places way, way worse than us. So it's a still a problem here, but it's not In my estimation, it's not one of the three most pressing issues. There was some progress made, but then for every progress, there's some backpedaling of they started enacting this kind of previously obscure statute that says that if someone's been convicted of a crime involving a gun in the last five years, and then they get accused of a crime involving a gun, then it creates a rebuttable presumption that no condition of release can ensure safety of the public and that they'll return, which is a whole bunch of lawyer talk. But basically it means those people get zero bond. Mm-hmm. If they have $10 million, they can't bond out. Now you may say, well, that those are really dangerous people,
1: but well, when you sometimes say involving a gun, well, I guess you're about to say this possession right? <laughs> of firearm by felon, right.
0: which to me is a status crime. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. not a violent. It's a, it's violent to use the gun. Mm-hmm. So I've had a client who had. A prior felony conviction, nothing involving a gun, but had a pending firearm by felon charge that we felt very good about the case, that we felt that he was not guilty of that charge. He's out on bond. Then he picks up a new charge of firearm by felon. He goes in on no bond. Now, that's a class G felony. Hmm. You know, everyone, for the most part in our system, everyone is guaranteed some type of bond except for first degree murder and level 3 drug trafficking. So, first degree rape, first degree sex offense, robbery with dangerous weapon, attempted murder, those all get bonds. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, not saying racist. that's a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then if you're charged with possession of firearm by felon a class G felony, which the state may offer a probationary sentence, no bond. So like those are policies that increase the jail population. Electronic monitoring is largely unchecked. CMPD somewhat unilaterally, they go to a magistrate to get a warrant. They say this person's violated their electronic monitoring. I had one a couple of weeks ago. My client had been on electronic monitoring for 460 days. He had seven hours of violations on those 460 days. They locked him up for that. Mm. So, I had to wait to get him in front of a superior court judge who said, well, I'm going to let him out, right? He he shouldn't have his bond forfeited for seven hours of missed curfew over the span of 460 days. That's a policy that increases incarceration. CMPD continuing to arrest people for misdemeanors. They call it jail churn, which is – you know, not a very humanistic term, but the idea it's not this stagnant number of people that are in the jail. It's an ever-changing population. We saw that during the protest arrests, mm-hmm. you know, you'd you'd have 70 people get arrested in the jail support arrests. I think it was 68, and they all get out. But but all those people went through the jail. And it's it's a it's a really frustrating situation. So I mean, there's always more that could be done from the prosecutor's perspective right. to reduce that. My policy is I would never, I would always consent to an unsecured bond if there was a reasonable likelihood that the person would get a probationary offer. Because I see that. I have, uh, on Monday, the prosecutor will argue against a bond reduction for my client, say that they're a danger to the public. And on Thursday, I get a plea offer that involves probation. probation. Mm -hmm. So wait a minute. He's a threat (laughs) to the public. When he's only accused of the bad thing. He learned his lesson on
1: Wednesday, Tim.
0: But yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But if he actually admits to doing the bad thing, we'll let him out. Because it's not about safety to the public. Mm -hmm. It's, we use jail as partially prosecutors use it as a way to coerce guilty pleas people are more likely to plead guilty if they're locked up that's the why innocent people plead guilty to crimes they didn't do so they can get out and i've had that happen and it's mm-hmm. those are some of the worst days of my career as a lawyer when i have a client who i know is pleading guilty to something they're innocent i simply because they want to get
1: home right and uh, i think i saw you or i think you were engaging a little bit with my tweets last year when i was reading that book charged by emily Bazelon. yeah Bazelon. have you read that I still haven't
0: read that yet i've read so many books it really woke me up to so
1: many different things as to obviously i knew the justice system was broken but it just gets very specific and these are things that you're already familiar with because it's your life and your job but just certain things that like gun laws like you said that that get introduced as liberal gun control this is the thing we want to stop gun violence and it's really just fucking people over um because it's It's inequitable, just like anything else. That's right. um, It's screwing people over who carry gun for protective measures or whatever it might be. And it's not going after the systemic problem of gun violence in Charlotte. It's not in Charlotte or in America. And it's not... Making any dent in That's gun violence, right. period. And
0: even, you know, CMPD is proud of their unit, their, I can't remember, it's a it's specialized a new one, right? gun, gun unit. Force, yeah. The data on that, the empirical evidence is really bad. Mm-hmm. There, there, There's no data that shows a link between an increase of gun confiscations and a corresponding decrease of gun violence. Mm-hmm. The, the The researchers think that there's no correlation because sometimes there is a correlation. Sometimes there's an inverse correlation, right? There will actually be a spike. Other times they can't discern anything. So it seems logical to say, hey, if we really aggressively get guns off the street, we'll have less gun violence. But the data thus far hasn't, Bared that Mm -hmm. out, and are
1: they? I'm not so familiar with their task force. I know that they were just talking very proudly about it at the end of the year report at City Council on Monday. Were they? Are they targeting like going to look for specific guns? I
0: don't know about that. I know they've got they've had this for a couple years. The crew C R U crime reduction. Oh right, right. This used to be the focus mission team. There was some there was some bad reporting about it, Mm -hmm. and then so I believe the previous police chief or maybe it was Chief Monroe said, "Oh, we've we've Disbanded the right. uh, the the focus mission team. Well, oh, they just relabeled right. it as the cr- and and this is your pretextual stops. Let's pull over black people and, and brown people in black and brown neighborhoods for pretextual reasons. Uh your re- inspection sticker or right. your registration sticker's expired. Your, your tag light, yeah, light is out. Um, you didn't come to a complete stop at the stop sign. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in South Charlotte. It's freaking the Autobahn. I right. mean, people are running red lights five seconds after the light's been red. You know, I drive nine over everywhere I go and I get people zipping past ah, me. on. Yeah, I've
1: passed by in Providence Road last night, a really I'm surprised I didn't get an email. I guess no one did pass away, but somebody rolled a bunch of times, it looked like, and we're off the road. I was just, it it just came to mind because I read another book. I got a monster last year about the Baltimore. Wait, because I want to talk about the
2: crime reduction unit. Well,
1: that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Oh, okay. It's about a task force in Baltimore that was the gun task force there, and they were charged with, or yeah, charged with going in and finding specific guns. This guy's got a gun or whatever, but they were using it corruptly to go rob drug dealers, and on the on the pretense that they were just going to look for a gun, and we think this guy has one, and it, that's not connecting the dots with CMPD or alleging. Although that it happening. very well could be.
2: could be, sure, because I've been told by. A source in CMPD and, you know, us as Queen City Nerve, we don't get as much access as some other people do. But uh, to investigate the crime reduction unit, because they're literally just little gangs of cowboys that go around in plain clothes yeah. and, right. and they're unmarked cars and they do the pretextual stops, just like you were saying, and become violent or, you know, use force against people that they're. You know, investigate. That was air quotes when I say it like that investigating uh, on the side of the street. And it usually is black and brown people. And there was one media outlet that did some report on the CRU. And it was after Harold Easter because they found out that it was the officer that shot and killed Keith Lamont Scott. Uh, Vincent. And uh, was also part of the Harold Easter incident. And then it was found out that Vincent was also part of the crime reduction unit in the Metro Division, where the crime reduction unit in the Metro Division, you know, just goes crazy on the black population there. And somebody did a report on it because there was like a video that came out of some guy got his ankle or wrist busted in a car door after they like broke his windows out, were pointing guns at him, pulled him out of the car and slammed his ankle or his wrist in the door. And then there was like a small little report on that. And it, it highlighted a lot of those super racist things that they do in those in their little, uh, you know, crime reduction process or whatever, but it didn't make a big splash. Nobody else picked it up. Nobody further reported on it. And to this day, I mean, honestly, I completely forgot it was a thing until you just brought it up. One of the challenges with traditional media is they want, they love the anecdotal
0: story. And I don't blame them because that's what the public has an appetite for, right? They want the innocent person or they want the case. The system is the story sometimes, the average case is the story. The way in which we have a community that is policed in two totally separate ways, depending on what you look like and where you live, that's the story. And lots of times I talk to to media members from traditional news stations and they want that one case. They want that one case that's got all of the details, you know, and that's not I always say that anecdotes make bad policy, too. It's the totality. That's the freaking story. The way in which they operate. banality of evil. Yeah. The way in which my, I tell a lot of my clients, look, I could drive around with a kilo of cocaine and plain view in the backseat of my car and never get pulled over. But my clients don't have that luxury. If their registration is expired, they're going to get pulled over twice a week in perpetuity until it's fixed. And they might even get pulled over if everything is copacetic with their
2: car and they haven't committed a violation. Right. Yep, it reminds me of years ago. Must have been like five years ago now. Actually, it was six years ago. I know that for a fact. I got pulled over on Central Avenue in the middle of the day on July 4th. Just because I never replace my registration sticker. Like, I get my car registered, but I just don't care about the sticker. Yeah. Run the fucking plate. You have a computer, you'll figure it out. Uh, But I got pulled over because he only just saw it visually. And I guess he must've been running my plate while he was turning his lights on. So I pulled over and he comes up to the car and I have a concealed carry permit. So I told him right away, I have a concealed firearm in the vehicle. And he just said, oh, that's okay. I just need to see your license. And I had my hands weaved under the steering wheel and my hands up on the dash. So I just make it to where it's like, you know tough for me to get out and i was like okay do you want me to i would i would be more comfortable getting out of the car so that you can pull my wallet out of my pocket and grab it He's like no that's fine just go for it and he <laughs> he was looking down at his he was looking down at something while he was saying all this he wasn't even looking at me and i just gave him my license and he said you know get that fixed and or actually cuz he at that time i realized that my car was fine but he never asked to see my concealed carry permit he wouldn't even really look at me. It didn't honestly didn't give a shit that I had to go in the car just because okay. I'm just a white guy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you just have to wonder Keith Lamont Scott if, cause that's not, that's not just some patrol officers board. These are guys in, in uh, was it CRU? These are guys on a team looking for a specific ref, what's the word fugitive. And they just happen to see someone rolling a blunt. Now if that's a college kid yeah. and that's a college town. I mean, that's a college part of the city and they just see a white, college kid who's rolling a blunt, are they going to stop what they're doing trying to find this fugitive and say, let's pull him out of this car? I just yeah. highly doubt it. I one time had an officer who must have taken a
0: dose of truth serum, and I really appreciated <laughs> it for him. It was, it was outside of the presence of the jury. It was during a jury trial. Uh, and so, unfortunately, the jury didn't hear this, but you know, it, it, I was challenging the, the, the nomenclature of high crime neighborhood. And, and I said to him, I said, can you think of any neighborhoods in Charlotte that are predominantly black and brown people that you would not describe as a high crime neighborhood? And he sat there and he said, no. And I said, okay, can you think of any neighborhoods in Charlotte that are predominantly white that you would describe as a high crime neighborhood? No. So can't we say, at least in Charlotte, that high crime neighborhood is simply a proxy for a neighborhood that has black and brown people in it? And he said, you could say that. Right I said, man, thank you for your honesty <laughs> yeah, I still hate the way you police said <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> neighborhoods, but um, normally, there's a lot of pushback and fight there i was mm. I was once threatened right. in court by a police officer for pointing out the disparities. I found the disparities in his stop data, mm. you oh. know, and was uh, yeah said that, uh, you know, you're calling me a racist. No, I'm just saying
1: that 95% of the people you pull over are black people. Right. Yeah. And that you might be inherently racist and (laughs) you just don't know. Absolutely. (laughs) So I do want to go over this campaign. I mean, what was it that sort of did put you in that mindset of this is what I want to do. I want to run for defense attorney. I want to run for district attorney.
0: Yeah, it, it was a long process. It was a long reflective process and some prayer on my part of, can I, can I do this job with my views? And then I see examples of it throughout the country. Kim Fox in Chicago and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and just up the road in, in Durham, uh, Satana DeBerry. And I said, I, I think so. What do I want to see? What? How do we move from a criminal punishment system to transform it to a criminal justice system? I believe that these systems are rooted in white supremacy and racism. That's the guise under which they were founded, and we've never really left that. So I fundamentally believe we can't reform such a diseased system through nibbling At the edges. And I think that's what's happening right now with the current district attorney. We're trying to nibble around the edges. I think it needs a more fundamental reform. And the thing about, I am not interested in politics. I'm not interested in being a politician. I'm interested in trying to create a community that we can all be proud of, where public safety, all this is in the name of public safety. I always say, if any of the stuff that we did worked, tough on crime. We would have the safest communities the world's ever seen because we spend more on police and we spend more on prisons and we lock up more people than any other place in the history of time. Yet we still have crime rates that far outpace other so-called industrialized nations. So let's have the courage to try and do something different that may seem counterintuitive, but actually has evidence to back it up because we know what doesn't work. And I think the position of prosecutor is unique in that through policies, I can effectuate some change working in collaboration with other people in that office can effectuate some change. Now it's, it, it could be temporary because you could lose, right? And you could get voted out and then someone else who has a more carceral approach could come in. So it's not the perfect fix, but it's motivated me to say, I love representing individual people, but I want to I love the policy. You know, Ayana Presley is like she has this t-shirts to say policy is my love language. I haven't bought one of those <laughs> yet, but like I love that. Like, yeah. what is the policy that we're gonna do? And that's what I'm trying to focus on. Right.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier you sort of have built certain tenets of your campaign around the facts of, of things that you don't necessarily need to go buy get buy in for. One of them being, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, uh, focus on you know not pursuing any death penalty cases. Correct. Now this is just my own ignorance of the court system, but when I saw that, I was like, I thought you know that would only be in federal cases that. I mean, how how does a, a local district attorney, and by local, I mean obviously, shots a big city, but on this level, do you prosecute death penalty cases? In- so
0: that's a lot of people think they hear that plank and they say, "Well, we don't have death penalty cases in Mecklenburg County." There actually is one case right now that mm-hmm. that, the, that the state is proceeding capitally on. Mm-hmm. And prosecutorial discretion is this very powerful tool. Mm -hmm. It's just so often we've seen prosecutorial discretion used to be as punitive and as carceral as possible. I want to use discretion to be, I'm not interested in being tough on crime. I'm interested in being smart on crime. How can we, what can we do to to reduce the likelihood that this person does harm in the future. Prison isn't the answer. I think that probation could be therapeutic, but as it's currently situated, isn't very therapeutic. So I'm interested in restorative justice practices and things like that. Of course, not on a murder case per Mm -hmm. se, but the death penalty to me, there's so many reasons to oppose it. There's, there's, but at its core to me, it's just immoral. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that government, a government, you know, suit should be in the business of deciding we're going to try and kill you. Right. Right. I am a spiritual person. I don't talk a lot about faith a lot. And it's not a huge, like, part of like, you know, I'm not, you know, some evangelical, you know, candidate. But to me, that is, that is a moral wrong. And I just, I have no part of it. And I would use prosecutorial discretion to say, we're going to use our discretion to say that it's wrong. And, and if the voters agree with me, then then put me in office, and that will be the policy of this county.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, what are the, I mean, uh, that's Hammurabi's code. You know, right. that's thousands of years old. <laughs> yeah. Eye for an eye. You don't need yeah. to. And, like, I, I appreciate the being smart on crime instead of tough on crime, because the fact of the matter is there are still going to be people committing violent crimes and people Absolutely. breaking the law. Like, that's just how the world works. So. You know, if you're listening to this, don't think Tim's just going to be like, you know, let all the criminals free. There's just, there are ways to go about doing that. Yeah.
0: No one's saying there isn't, you know, people, when when someone has progressive views, they want to jump to like, what are we going to do with the murderers and the rapists? Like no one's saying that there isn't a place that some people need to be incapacitated. But I also want to go from a perspective of prison represents failure, It represents failure on the part of the person who did the thing. It represents failure on the part of the system, because I want I want our prosecutors to think of prison as like we just throwing up our hands. There's nothing else that we can try. We just need to incapacitate this person. And I don't think that we look at it with that lens right now. Mm -hmm. That's I can't undo the crime that happened yesterday. But what can we do as prosecutors? What circumstances can we set into place to seriously reduce the likelihood that that person will do harm in the future? That's what our system is the least good at. And I think that's the most important thing we can do to improve public safety. That's the way to really create that safe community that we all want Charlotte to be, is being mindful of that reduction right there. Right. The the intervention, the early intervention, and the continued intervention. Right, yeah. continued intervention. That's yeah. That's not a term we hear all the time. It's always early intervention. We. Right. I I see this in in like treatment court and, and like probation officers are like, well, no, we just need to revoke him. He he tested positive. He's a drug addict. Yeah, that is part relapse is part of the bag. Uh, he lied to me. Oh really? <laughs> a, a drug addict lied to you. Mm-hmm. Well, let him in a Let's put out a press release on that <laughs> unique circumstance. Like right. we have to appreciate that there is going to be some failure, and that that doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that was a really quick hour, man. That flew by. Yeah, I really I love appreciate <laughs> you chatting with us uh, and coming in short notice. Is there anything else just on the campaign front? Send people to where they can check check out your platform and your. Message. Yeah. The, the website is tim4da.com, F-O-R
0: spelled out. The real simple four pillars are holding the police accountable when they break the law, ending the mass incarceration policies of the current district attorney's office, promoting racial, restorative, and transformative justice, and a commitment to never seeking the death penalty. And I think we're going to come out with a piece about, you know, looking at what's might be ahead in Raleigh respecting women's reproductive rights. But yeah, check out the website. Check us out on social media. We put out a policy Wednesday every Wednesday where I do a short little one minute video and we put out a one pager on a, on a policy position. Right. Um,
1: cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Tim. And Thank we'll be doing you more um, coverage as the election nears. Thanks for coming on and, and sort of breaking the ice with us. Super happy to be here. Thank you All for right. having me. And we'll see you guys next time. Cheers.